0: I want to begin today by wishing everyone a happy and blessed new year, even as we enter 2021 and lockdown due to COVID-19. You know, we're beginning the new year by looking again at the last uh, book of the Bible and specifically the last third of the book of Revelation, the concluding book of the New Testament, because Revelation is a book of the Bible that unveils ultimate hope. And this is a year where we need to be fixed on the hope of Christ like no other. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to remind you, that Revelation begins with an amazing promise. It's the opening, in its opening words, John the writer of Revelation says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. And so we want to take to heart every word as we are making our way chapter by chapter through this important book of the Bible knowing we'll find blessing in what it reveals if we open our heart to what God says. You know, Revelation not only unveils hope, but Revelation reveals to us God's character and his eternal attributes. Last Sunday, as we looked at the words of Revelation 15, Joel Melnichek helped us see that not only is Jesus a Savior, which is what Christmas is all about, but God is also a deliverer. And today, as we pick up where we left off and move into chapter 16, we're going to see that God is also a righteous judge. So grab your Bible and turn with me Back to Revelation 15 to verse 1, where the Apostle John says, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And now, dropping down to verse 5, where we left off from last Sunday, John writes, And after this, I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And then John writes, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed." Here John sees angels holding golden bowls containing seven last plagues of judgment that John says here in Revelation 15, complete God's wrath against sin. He says they are last because they complete the judgment of God's wrath. Wrath is a word for righteous anger. Wrath is justified anger, justified action against something that is wrong. As a righteous judge, John sees God pour out wrath in the end times upon evil and all those who pursue it. These seven bowls of judgment are actually the third of three sets of judgments that John sees God progressively pour out before Jesus' return. Three is a number in Revelation that represents divine character. And in these judgments, these three sets of judgment, God's righteous character as a divine judge who pours out wrath against evil and those who pursue it is revealed. And not only that but in each set there are seven judgments. Seven is a number if you remember that represents completion in the book of Revelation. And John says these last seven judgments of the bowls complete God's righteous wrath against those who are perpetrating evil. And so these three sets of judgments—the seals, the trumpets, and now the bowls reveal God's righteous character and the extent of his fury against evil and those who pursue it. 1 John 3 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Here in Revelation 16, as we near the time of the end, John sees God pour out increasing wrath against the devil and those who align themselves with him through what John sees as the mark of the beast— this is all about God coming against and destroying the work of the enemy. And as each set of judgments unfold, we see God's judgment becoming more intense, more strong. First, John sees the seven judgments of the breaking of the seals of the scroll that he sees in God's right hand that we looked at way back in chapter 6 that release seven end-time trends of trouble, such as earthquakes and famines. And then in chapter 8, John hears the blowing of seven trumpets that release more judgment, where John sees a third of the earth burned, a third of the sea turned to blood, and a third of the day turned to darkness. Increasing judgment God brings against the work of the devil. The same kind of judgments that God brought upon Pharaoh in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, to release the Israelites, God's people, from the slavery of Egypt. But now, as we near the end, John sees these seven angels holding these seven golden bowls. First, it was the seals, and then the trumpets, but now these seven bowls containing God's last judgments, they touch not only a third, but all the earth. And so flipping over to chapter 16 and verse three, John says, he sees the second angel pour out his bowl upon the sea and says, not a third, but every living thing in the sea died. Increasing judgment as the end comes near. And at the end of this chapter, John calls the seventh and last bowl of God's judgment a cup Filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. What John sees is God's wrath, God's righteous anger being poured out in judgment upon the works of the devil, upon evil, and those who stubbornly pursue it or align themselves with the enemy who is in opposition to God and his ways. You know, talking about divine judgment is probably not what you expected for a first message for a new year, but that's where our text takes us as we keep making our way through Revelation's words. And there are some really important takeaways from our passage today. First, Revelation unveils for us and shows us that God is a righteous judge who will one day pour out the fury of his wrath upon evil, every injustice, and those who pursue it. Now, for some, hearing about judgment is a turnoff, and I, I understand that. But if we see it correctly, God's judgment is actually a demonstration of his love and his promise to bring hope. The Bible makes it clear that you and I are to never judge. Jesus said, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Jesus warns us not to judge because our judgments are rarely right. We often, to one degree or another, do the same things we judge others of doing. And even in a human court of law, a jury and a judge can only do their best to decide a person's innocence or guilt and determine a sentence that fits the crime. But even so, a court's judgment can only be measured by the standard of being beyond a shadow of a doubt. But with God, there is no shadow. There's no darkness. He sees everything clearly. Instead, our text reminds us that only God is worthy of judgment, of judging our lives. And that's the second important takeaway from this passage. And when God does judge, he's always right. He's always justified in his response. Twice in our passage, John hears God being declared just in his judgment. In verse 5, He hears a third angel commanded to pour out his bowl of judgment. John hears the angel declare in light of these last increasing judgments that, God, you are just in these judgments, O Holy One. And then in verse 7, he hears it again. Yes, Lord, God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. John hears it twice. We hear it twice, just in case we might have missed it the first time. The point being that no matter what we may think of God's judgments, or other moments in Scripture that talk about God destroying cities like Sodom and Gomorrah, two notoriously evil cities from the Old Testament, God is always just in his actions, even if it might be difficult for us to understand. He's always true. He's always right. Sometimes our way of thinking, we question God. How, God, could you allow that to happen to me or to that person? Or how can a loving God pour out wrath? Because in our human way of thinking, those two things just don't go together. But in God, they do. Because unlike us, God is always loving and always perfect, even in judgment, even in wrath. It's because of who God is. He's the only one worthy of judging our lives, judging the earth. He alone knows the true motivations of the heart and the true impact of our actions. Ultimate judgment is reserved for God and God alone. God's judgments are always righteous because He's omniscient. A big word that means he knows everything. God sees every angle. God's judgments are always righteous because God's always loving. He is the living definition of love. 1 John 4 says this, whoever does not love God does not love, does not know God because God is love. So God never acts out of spite or like us sins in his anger. God's judgments are also always right because God is holy meaning he's perfect, he's pure, and he's always good. Therefore, his judgments are always just, always perfect. And that's why judgment is reserved for God alone. He's the only one worthy of making judgment of our lives and of our world. The third takeaway we see in our text is that God's judgments are always a last resort. The increase of God's judgment happened near the end because It's a last resort in this unfolding drama of how God wraps things up. In verse 2, John says, The first angel went out and poured out his bowl in the land, and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. John sees God's judgments not as random or arbitrary, just hitting anyone. He sees God's judgments specifically coming upon those who had taken the mark of the beast and who actively worship its image. God's just judgment comes upon those who identify themselves with the beast. In Revelation, the beast is an image of the the, or a symbol for the power or the system or the culture of the world that carries out the devil's bidding and his anti-Jesus, anti-God agenda. Those bent on doing evil, those bent on resisting God and the goodness of his ways. And so John sees God's judgments take the form of Ugly, festering sores. Again, the the very same kind of imagery and judgments that we see God uh, bringing upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus in order to bring Egypt to a point of letting his people go. It had purpose. In Exodus chapter 9, it says, God caused festering boils to break out on the Egyptians, but still Pharaoh, having been told it was a judgment from God and sent to actually motivate him to change his ways, would still not listen If you remember in the story, God sends Moses to tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. But it's only when Pharaoh refuses that God begins to send judgment. Judgment's always a last resort. It's not God's desire to bring judgment. God sends one judgment at a time, one after another in the story to push Pharaoh to change. But Pharaoh keeps refusing until the point where the judgment is so severe That the firstborn of every Egyptian household dies, and it's only then, for a time, did Pharaoh relent and listen to God's command to release his people. The judgments God brings through the seven angels with the bulls here in Revelation 16 are more widespread and severe than any of the other two sets of judgments that were poured out before. And what we need to see is that they come only after these other two sets of judgment have been poured out. They're a last resort. Just like John hearing twice that God's judgments are perfect and just in what he is doing, John also hears twice that those who are experiencing these judgments and the pain of them keep refusing to repent. They refuse to change direction, refuse to turn to God. In verse 9, John says, They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent. And glorify him. And then John hears it again in verse 11. John sees the pattern repeated. They cursed the God of heaven, John writes, because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. John sees that even though they were experiencing the pain of God's judgment, which they knew was from God, they still refused in the hardness of their heart to turn to God. Instead, they cursed God's name. You see, God only sends judgment as a last resort when there's no other option left. Even then, despite knowing the outcome, God gives opportunity to turn to even the hardest hearts. God gives opportunity even when he knows that he is going to be turned down, that a person won't take his offer, because of, but he does so because of his love for them. And you know, God's heart is the same for us. Maybe you know someone who's been fighting God. Maybe you've been fighting God. And all the while, circumstances will be getting worse, but still, somehow, they aren't willing to listen or change direction and turn back to God. But God and His love will keep pursuing them. He'll keep pursuing you and use difficulties and even judgments to get a person's attention. But God will never violate the freedom that He has given to every soul to turn their lives over to Him. And finally, our last takeaway is that God's judgments are not only his last resort, but they always give way to God getting the glory. At the end of these judgments here in Revelation 16, John sees the powers of the earth still opposing God, even after all of the judgments, the warnings, and the invitations to repent and to turn around. After the bowls are poured out, John sees a final battle erupting, a last attempt to oppose God on the earth. And so in verse 13 of John 16 here, John sees three impure spirits that he says in verse 14 are actually demonic spirits. And John says they go out to the kings of the earth to gather them for the battle of the great day of God Almighty to a place John calls it in verse 16, Armageddon. That's a title that we hear often. It's in movies. It's about epic battles. But Armageddon is actually a name that simply means the hill of Megiddo. Megiddo is literally a a plain or a raised hill in Israel. It's there to this day, where in previous generations, Israel fought and lost with foreign powers, with powers that were opposing God and his ways. And so there's debate as to whether Armageddon here in Revelation is intended to be the place of an actual end-time battle that is still yet to come, or whether John is simply talking about a place that symbolizes battle with the enemy. Where in the past, God's people has faced the enemy and lost. But here, the outcome is going to be very different. John sees these three, these demonic spirits stir up the kings and powers of the earth to oppose God, just as the enemy had done in the Old Testament. But in this time, it's for one last final battle. Only this battle at Armageddon will have a very different outcome. As I said, it will bring about God's final victory over evil. What John sees is really the fulfillment of a prophecy of David from Psalm chapter 2, where David prophesies, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And then David says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them. In his wrath, there's that word again saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And here David is talking about Jesus. And then further down, as David continues to prophesy about Jesus, he says, you are my son, and today I become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. This battle of Armageddon is about God finally overcoming every Earthly opposition to him so that he may have the nations. You know, it's amazing to see how consistent the Bible is, how uh, Jesus has fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy, and how every prophecy from both Old and New Testament will come to pass if it hasn't already. What's also amazing is that when John sees this great final battle, this last effort of the enemy against God and his people come to an end, it comes to an end without even a fight. There's not even a mention of a fight. And that's because there's no match for God. All that is said at the end of this battle of Armageddon is that the great city of Babylon, uh, an image of the ungodly power of the world has fallen. It's been defeated. All the power of the world and the devil is no match for God. God's just judgments will always give way to God getting the glory. There's never any winning against God. The only way to win is to surrender. God's judgments are actually demonstrations of love and the promise of hope. And that's what I want you to see today. How does love and judgment come together? In his love, God judges evil and those who pursue it because of the pain that sin brings and the separation from him That it causes. God's promise of judgment gives us hope, not despair, because God's judgment will one day bring an end to all injustice. That's the hope this world needs to have. He will not let the fallenness, the abuse, and the darkness that characterizes our world and even our hearts go on forever. He's promised to bring it all to an end and he will do so at the coming of Jesus. Think of those in other parts of the world where there's no rule of law, where there is a corrupt dictatorship. Revelation holds out the hope of a coming judgment for every injustice. Or maybe on a more personal note, if, you've ever, if you have an inner struggle of some kind, something that you feel you're always having to battle, and maybe sometimes losing, God not only promises to give you the grace to endure, but he promises to one day judge and bring to an end everything that puts up a fight, every physical and spiritual power that opposes His will and goodness happening in your life. He promises to judge it and bring it down so that you might be free eternally. It's because of God's great and perfect love that He promises to bring judgment against all that hinders His love and goodness in the world and in our lives. You know, Without the promise of judgment, there would be no hope of justice for those who suffer, and no end to the pain that characterizes our world and so much of our lives. What God delights in is not bringing judgment, but in bringing hearts to a place of surrender. Instead of fighting God and hardening your heart, God delights in a heart that is willing to surrender to him. And maybe there's a place in your life or your heart today where you need to be surrendered, where you've been holding out on him, See, the only ones who need to be nervous of God's judgment are those who refuse to surrender, those who refuse to repent. But all that is required to escape judgment and find mercy is a contrite heart that's ready to repent of sin and surrender to Jesus' loving leadership. Because that's where you find victory. It's in surrender. Jesus made a way for us to wave the white flag of surrender by going to the cross where he made a way for both God's judgment and mercy to both be fulfilled. It's the love and genius of God that sent Jesus to the cross. You know, before God, we all stand guilty. We all stand condemned because of our sin. We're all under judgment to satisfy the wrath of his fury. God meted out the penalty and punishment for our sin upon Jesus, the penalty being death and separation from the Father, which Jesus willingly took upon Himself at the cross in exchange that we would be offered pardon for sin and a restored relationship with the Father through the forgiveness He purchased for us with His very blood. 1 John 4 says this This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Today, I want to invite you to come to a fresh place of surrender, to bring your heart again to the cross and receive mercy. Instead of judgment, God wants to show you mercy. All he asks is that you'd freely confess and repent of your sin, whatever it may be, and turn to him through faith in his son, believing that what Jesus did in the cross, he did for you to set you free. That's what it means to become a Christian, to surrender your life to Christ, to receive the mercy and the forgiveness of God, to have judgment passed over you, knowing it was placed upon Christ. That's the wonderful gift that we receive through Jesus, that we would not be objects of wrath, that we would not be destined for judgment, but that we would receive mercy and live in the love and the freedom of God that only Jesus can bring. I want to invite you right now to pray a fresh prayer of surrender. Why don't you join me? Heavenly Father, we just want to say thank you that you love us. You so love the world that you sent your one and only Son to take our place on the cross that we could be forgiven. We thank you for the exchange, Jesus, where you took the wrath and the fury of the Father over sin upon yourself that we might go free And we thank you for judgment. We thank you that you are coming again, Lord Jesus. And when you do, you are going to judge everything that opposes your ways in our lives. You're going to end it. You're going to bring your ultimate victory. And we just want to say thank you for the hope of that end time judgment to come where you will do away with all that opposes your will and your way in our lives. We thank you that you so love the world. You're not giving up on us. And you are going to one day get rid of it all. Lord Jesus, we just thank you that your perfect love drives out all fear as we decide to surrender and turn our lives to you. May this year be a year where we live in your hope, in your love, and in your spirit more than we ever have. We pray this together in Jesus' name.